Made me think of the words of Gomer Pyle, Shazam. <laughs> if you will turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and as you find that, you can stand and I will read Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let me pray. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to be in relationship with you to know you, to have you indwell us, to be in right standing with you, having been made right with you through Christ's atoning death on our behalf. We thank you, God, for your ministry to teach us and to lead us into all truth and righteousness. And we ask, God, that by your Spirit, that again, that you would just be pleased to speak to our hearts and that we would give with our whole being our amen, Lord, to, to what you have written and said to us. In Christ's name, amen. You seated. Well, this is a, a tremendous passage of Scripture. It reminds me a little bit, though, of um, a running back or fullback in, in football. And I remember my high school days. I didn't play football, but I sure enjoyed watching. Man, I tell you, we had... One of, the, one of the top um, teams in state my senior year in high school. One of my best friends was, was one of the running backs, and both running backs my senior year um, were, had over 1,000 yards that, that season. One of them was a cut and dash and slash type of runner. Nobody could hardly put a hand on him. And the other guy, my friend, would just, just run upright straight down the field, people bouncing off of him. It was exciting to watch. And I, you know, it makes me think, you know, football wouldn't be nearly as fun to watch if there wasn't that kind of interference and bouncing off one another and, and contesting for the goal line. If, if, if they just hiked the ball and opened up the line and the guy just ran a straight line, nobody would go to a football game. 
Sometimes it feels like me handling a passage of Scripture like this. I'd like to just run just straight with no interference and just go for the goal line. But this is a passage of Scripture like so many others where there's been so much interference. A lot of different um, ideas and, 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 and really, uh, I, th- I think, just, just bad thinking. And so it's hard to work through the passage and get to the point without having to deal with some of these other things that have come up. But first of all, if you remember by way of review how, we've, how Paul has arrived where he is now. In chapter 1, and this is very important, one of the key verses that all commentators recognize about the book of Romans is chapter 1, verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's a very important, that that verse there really serves as, as very much of a controlling idea, almost theme for the book of Romans. The righteous man shall live by faith. So there, and then he develops that and tells us exactly what he means is that there is no way to have life unless you're righteous. And there's no way to have righteousness which leads to life unless you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. And so he'll establish in the next three chapters that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't have life. And then in the next chapter, using Abraham as an example, he'll show Abraham was a man who was declared righteous and entered into life simply by faith. And it's the same thing today as we put our faith in Christ. God, ten times it says in Romans 4, God declares us righteous. And then that results in justification. And the proof of that justification, the last verse of Romans 4, is that Christ has been raised from the dead. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then you know that you have been justified. Your justification is not based upon His, on his resurrection, but it is proof that you have been justified. And so then he went in and he spoke about what that justification looks like, and essentially life, that we have much more in Christ who loves us and gave himself for us than what we ever had in Adam. And that we have a hope, we can have the confidence that God is working trial for our good, we can delight in God himself, and we can know that we are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ and in that place of Christ, that what we have in Christ is exceedingly more, much more than anything that we had in Adam, which was condemnation and death. So, he, may, he wound up chapter 5 with that statement, man, where there is sin, grace abounds all the more. And he's trying to make the point that the life of Christ and what has been offered to us in Christ is far greater than anything we can ever get from ourselves, than anything we can ever get from our, from our inheritance in Adam or in the world or anywhere else. And as negative as all that is, the life of Christ is far greater. Grace abounds where there is sin. So it's almost as though Paul anticipates the question. Some people say, then why not sin all the more? Then we might have all the more grace. And he uses the strongest negative that is possible in the Greek language to say, no way. Let it never be said. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. Now, there are a lot of things here to, to touch on, and man, I tell you, it, I, just, I feel like 
Where do you start? And every word here is significant. But I want to point out a couple of things here right from the beginning where it says, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Understand here, he is not saying that life increases where there is an increase of sin, but he is saying grace increases where there is an increase of sin. Here's the thing. Remember that, that almost theme verse back in Romans 1.17, that the righteous shall live by faith. And the point is on life. And then look back to chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, For if by the transgressions of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Now keep this thought. What I'm going here is, is I, it just occurred to me, reading through Romans again, reading through this passage and studying for, for today, that Paul is talking more here, I think, than is it possible, potentially, theoretically, for a Christian to live in sin. That's one thing that he's saying. And, and, and all the translations have translated with that sense. Can you be a Christian and continue living in sin? And Paul would answer that question, yes. But you shouldn't. But I don't even think that's really the heart of this. As I, because again, the theme here of Romans is, how do you live? How, where do you get life? How do you acquire life? The righteous shall live by faith. Now look at how he ends chapter 6. Just jumping ahead, I didn't read this this morning, but look at verse 21. Therefore, what benefit... Were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed, speaking of before you were a Christian? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And here's his summary statement for this chapter. The wages of sin. Now he's writing to Christians. He's not talking about pre-conversion, post-conversion. He's writing to Christians. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is what I think Paul's saying. Yes, grace abounds where sin abounds. But make no mistake, life does not. And if you want to live, then you can only live by living in faith, in a faith relationship with Jesus. You want to experience the grace of God? Sin to your heart's content. And you will know God's continued grace. But you will never know life. Because the wages of sin is death. Is there God's grace even in death? Even in sin? Absolutely. God is a gracious God and He is gracious to the very end. And there will never be a man or woman who stands before God and says, you were not gracious to me. He is gracious to all. And sin, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But life does not. And if you want life, then you've got to live by coming and receiving from God the gift that he's offered to us, which is Jesus Christ and life in him. So read the verse that way, especially verse 2. May it never be... How shall we who died to sin? And here's my observation. Every translation I looked at has something along the flavor of the New American Standard. 
How shall we who died to sin still live in it? I find nothing in the Greek text that has the word still or continuously or anything else else like that. The idea, you take that out and read it. How shall we who died to sin live in it? There is no life in sin. I really think that's where Paul's going here. It fits with his theme in chapter 1, verse 17. It's consistent with chapter 5, verse 17. And it fits with the conclusion of this chapter. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. How shall we, who died to sin, find life in sin? You'll find God's grace, but you will not find God's life. Now, I don't have any commentaries to back that up. So that's purely Charlie McCall. So maybe it's not right. You can find a commentary maybe and say, Charlie, maybe you're right after all. I don't know. But it seems to me, looking at that, what all agree is the, is the theme verse for this book, Romans 1.17. And looking at how Paul is summarizing this own chapter, that this is where Paul is going with this. There is simply... No life in sin. Will you know God's grace? Absolutely. Will you know his life? No. Does that mean you're not saved if you're living in sin? No. That just means you're not going to experience the much more of his life while living in willful disobedience to God. You can't. You're abiding in death. You're not abiding in life. Now, In what sense do we die to sin? First of all, we need to understand that that whatever he means by this, it is in the same sense in which Christ died to sin. Because he'll say, I think it's in verse 10, Christ died to sin. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So the death that we died is in the same sense in which Christ died. And also we understand that he's saying here that it's true of all Christians. Not just an occasional Christian. Some have died to sin and some have not died to sin. All Christians have died to sin. And all Christians have died to sin in the same sense in which Christ died to sin. Now this is very important here. Because it gets to the heart of a very important subject and that is what does the Bible mean by death? Very important. And it does not mean simply that something has ceased to be, that it has gone out of existence, that it's annihilation. That's not what the Bible means by death. Typically, it means a, a separation or, or a um, cessation of a relationship. A relationship has come to an end. There has been a separation from something. And in fact, when Paul uses death... Almost invariably, it's in connection with sin. And so death is the judicial consequence of sin. But it's never used in the sense of annihilation, that something just stopped being. And so when it comes to to this question of death, and I'm going to depend very heavily here on John Stott, and I appreciate his remarks here, and and I want to read some of what he said. He says, the popular opinion of death is that it's used as an illustration of being dead like a corpse. Now, he's not using this when it, of, of, of 
you know, man's condition before he was saved. And again, Paul's talking about now that we have been saved here in Romans 6. We have died to sin. But it does apply. However, Paul's using death in relation to the Christian dying to sin is probably how the Bible is using death in relation to the unbeliever toward God. And so the popular idea here is that we are as dead towards sin as a corpse is towards stimuli. We drove by a dead skunk as soon as we left his hill property today. I know it was dead. It was spread out a lot bigger than what it normally is. And I didn't even know it was a skunk until after we drove by it, and then I go, that was a skunk. (laughs) It was beyond recognition prior to that time. If I'd gotten out of my car and poked that skunk to see if it was still alive, there would have been no response whatsoever. So the popular idea of death is that we are dead means there is no response whatsoever. But here, it is dead to sin. Does that mean that the Christian is totally unresponsive to sin? Raise your hand. (laughs) If you are totally unresponsive to sin, my hand's down. I've never met that Christian. And I'm sure that Christian's not here today. We are all very responsive to sin. So it can't mean that. So Stock goes on and he he talks about this in more detail. Um, He says... There are, however, at least three fatal objections to this popular view of being just unresponsive to sin, like a corpse. The Bible doesn't use death like a corpse. First, it is incompatible with the meaning of the death of Christ. The expression died to sin or dead to sin occurs twice regarding Christians in this chapter, 2 and 11, and once of Christ, verse 10. Since it is a right principle of interpretation that the same phrase recurring in the same context bears the same meaning, we must find an explanation of this death to sin, which is true both of Christ and of Christians. What then did Paul mean when he stated that Christ died to sin once for all? It cannot mean that at some point he became unresponsive to sin. Since this would imply that previously he had been responsive to it. To be sure, his temptations were real. But was the Lord Jesus Christ earlier so continuously alive to sin that he needed on the cross to die to it decisively once for all? That would be an intolerable slur on his character. And I agree. Jesus did not need to die to sin in the sense of becoming unresponsive to it because he was never responsive to it. Jesus never sinned. But it is in the sense of which he took the the character of sin, he took the condemnation of sin upon himself, which is death. Christ died. He took the judicial consequence of sin upon himself. And we died with him. That's where Paul's going. We are baptized into his death and resurrection. Secondly, Stott says, this view is incompatible with Paul's concluding exhortations. If our fallen nature has effectively died, or we have died to it so that we are no longer responsive to sin's temptations, it would be unnecessary for the apostle to exhort us to not let sin reign in the body. Doesn't that make sense? If I have so died to sin that I am totally unresponsive to it, then why does Paul need to say to the Christian, do not let sin reign in your mortal body? Doesn't make sense. And then finally, as I ask for a show of hands, 
Nobody has the experience that they are dead to sin. In the sense that it has no power, no presence, and that we are totally unresponsive to it in our lives. That has never been the Christian experience. To sum up the objections to the popular view, Christ did not die to sin in the sense of becoming insensitive to it. For he never was thus alive to it, that he needed to die to it. If we have not died to sin in this sense either, because we are still alive to it, as Paul's exhortations and our experience demonstrate, indeed we are told to put to death our fallen nature and its activities. But how can we put to death what is already dead? There must be a better and more liberating interpretation of the death to sin, which is true of Christians, of Christ and of Christians, all Christians. So now we turn to the true meaning. Just to read a little bit more, because it's very important. The popular misunderstanding well illustrates the danger of arguing from an analogy. In every analogy, we need to consider at what point the parallel or similarity is being drawn. We must not press a resemblance at every point. Are we dead in trespasses and sins before we become a Christian? Yes. Are we like a corpse? Maybe we're pressing the analogy too far. Are we dead to sin? Yes. Does that that mean that we are totally unresponsive to sin? I don't think so. So then he continues and he says, For instance, when Jesus told us to become like little children, that's an analogy. He did not mean to say that we are to copy every characteristic of children. What he meant was we are to be humble as children are humble. And he specifically says that in Matthew 18. If we answer these questions from Scripture rather than from analogy, from biblical teaching about death, rather than from the properties of dead people, we shall find immediate help. I like that. What does death mean? You look at Scripture to see how Scripture uses death. You don't look at the properties of dead people to see what death means. What does the Bible say about death? And Stock goes on. Death is represented in Scripture more in legal than in physical terms. Not so much as a state of lying motionless, but as the grim, though just, penalty for sin. It is the severance of a relationship, the termination, the separation, and it is, as Stott is saying, the just consequence for sin. Christ died to sin in that he took the consequence of sin, he took sin upon himself as a judicial act of God, dying in our place. And when he did, we died with him. We were baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. We were dead with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, dead to sin. Not in the sense that sin's presence is gone, not in the sense that sin has no power whatsoever any longer, but in the sense that we are no longer obligated to it because the relationship to it is not what it was. The relationship with Christ now is the, is the dominant working relationship in our lives. And we now, because we are in Christ, have the power to say no to sin. But it is a very real entity, it is, and, and it is something that is still very much present and alive in us, which gets me to another point.
And that is, every time, except one, that sin is mentioned in these two chapters, 6 and 7, 25 times sin is mentioned, only one time is it an act. And that's verse 15 of chapter 6. Look at it with me real quickly. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. May it never be. That is the only use of sin out of 15 uses in chapter 6, 25 uses in the two chapters, 6 and 7. That is the only time sin is used of an act, of a behavior. Every other instance, it is used of a principle, of a nature. Now, here's the deal. Is it who died or is it what died? Look at it again going back to chapter 6 verse 2. May it never be, how shall we who died? If sin, look, if sin died, then you would expect Paul to say, how shall it who died? But it doesn't say it died. It doesn't say something died. It says someone died. 25 uses of sin. 24 of those are sin is an entity within us. And it didn't go away. It didn't die. We died. The Christian died. Now, what I'm getting at here is one of those obstacles that comes slamming at you when you're running for the goal line. And that is, does the Christian have one nature or two natures? Does he still possess a sin nature? Or was the sin nature eradicated? Remember that word eradicate? See, it is putting a definition on death that the Bible knows nothing about. Death in the Bible is not eradication. Secondly, it is saying when, when, when folks argue that, that the sin nature died, that it, we lost it, it is gone, it was crucified, it is no longer present in your life, they are saying that something died rather than someone died. And all through this passage of Scripture, it is the person who died, not the principle of sin that died. So, for example, and I'm listing seven different reasons here for saying that we have a sin nature. Number one, persons, not dispositions or natures, are spoken of throughout um, as having died. Secondly, the person is freed from sin. It is not, um, it, in other words, the person who died in the sinful disposition are made distinct. The person is freed from sin. The person died. Third thing, dis the disposition died. If that's the case, it distorts the identification with Christ. Christ, in other words, did not die for a sinful disposition. Jesus died for people. We died with Christ. He identified himself with persons, not principles, not sin, nature, not disposition. We are to reckon ourselves dead, not our sin natures. It says, reckon yourself dead. It doesn't say, reckon the sin nature dead. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. 
the believer has died to sin, it doesn't say that sin has died to the believer. If the sin nature has died, then there should be no struggle with sin. It would all be external, and we know that's not the case. And then finally, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He doesn't say, sin has been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. So it gets to the question, in what sense then do we die? There's this green book here. I'm going to recommend a book again. I know this is being very academic this morning, but this, this is some stuff we really have to plow through. It's called The New Nature, Reynolds Showers. I really appreciate Reynolds a lot. I finally just bought all of his books. And, um, and this is on the subject of whether the Christian has one nature or two. It, it is the most theological treatise on this subject that I've ever come across. There are no illustrations in this book. There are no applications in this book. There are no pictures in this book. It's not the first kind of book I'd pick up and read. But it is solid, working through the scriptures, truth. And I find that encouraging. So once in a while, I want to pick up a book that's not about illustrations. There's no fluff. It's just 100% meat. And this is one of those. And it typically makes the book a little shorter, you know, because the guy's just, he's just giving you the plain truth. Good stuff. Now, in what sense do we die? And this author makes the point. There's three primary um, identities or, or ways to identify a person. Physically, metaphysically, and spiritually. Now, when it says here, going back to Romans 6, look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead, so through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. We've been buried with him. We were crucified with him. We were risen with him. Clearly, that was not physically. None of us have the marks of crucifixion on our hands. None of us were put into a tomb as corpses. So it is not a physical death that he's speaking of. Well, that leaves metaphysical. And I didn't understand that at first, so he had to explain it. And that means the aspects of your identity which make up basically who you are today. The teacher you had in the first grade. The name that you were given by your parents. The fact that you broke your arm at one time in your life. The schools that you went to. The person that you married. The children that you have. All of these are metaphysical realities. They're not physical, but they are real nonetheless. None of those things died when you became a Christian. Your history is still the same. Right? So that didn't die. Physically, I didn't die with Christ. Metaphysically, I didn't die. All that's left is spiritual. Well, see, we don't like that because somehow that means to us, well, it's not quite as real. And God says, you're not thinking like I am. God says the real you is not your physicality. The real you is not the metaphysicality. Those things are almost non-essentials. The real you is who you are spiritually. And that's why when God looks at a man... He's looking to see, is he alive or is he dead? Is he saved or is he lost? The true identity of every person who's ever been born is who he is spiritually. And God says, 
That spiritual identity is not who you are anymore. That was crucified with Christ. That is the old man. That died. Again, not the sin nature, but my identity before God as an enemy of God. Remember chapter 5? Helpless, ungodly, an enemy of God. That identity is gone. Absolutely gone. God will never call me an enemy again. God will never call me a child of Satan, a citizen of the, dark, of the kingdom of darkness. Never. Because that's gone. I am a new creature in Christ. Metaphysically, physically, still the same Charlie McCall. Spiritually, absolutely new. And that is the significant part of each one of us. That is our true identity. Look at how he puts it. Reading through, coming to verse 5. If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him. Old self is simply our spiritual identity, the true essence of who we are prior to becoming a Christian. That man has been put to death. And a new man has been raised. And then he says, another hard term, the old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with. Not that the sin nature would be done away with, but that the body, which has up to that point been under the dominion and control and reign and mastery of sin, is no longer under sin's control. Now, many times, and I I don't think you can overstate this, many times when Paul speaks of the body, he is speaking of the entire person. He has to. And and you see, for example, where it says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been purchased with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Is Paul saying glorify God only with your body? I don't have to glorify God with my mind, with my thoughts? No. No. Obviously, he means with your entire person. It wasn't just your body that was purchased. Your entire humanity was purchased by Jesus. Therefore, glorify God with your entire humanity. So body is simply a figure of speech many times for Paul that in part in reference to the whole. The whole. The whole of who you are. And here when he says the body was an instrument of sin. It wasn't the cause of sin. And again, there are many Christians that read this and say, what makes you sin today if you have no sin nature? And the answer is, my flesh. Paul says it is the flesh which makes you sin. I had a Christian man tell me, hit his arm. I said, what makes you sin? He goes, this makes me sin. My flesh makes me sin. That is Greek Platonism. That is the dualism of Greek philosophy. That may be true of Socrates. It is not true of Paul. That sin is not caused by our physicality. This is why Jesus said, in one hand, he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand makes you stumble, cut it off. But then he'll turn around and say, if the thing, these evil things, these adulteries, these murders, these covetousness, they proceed from the heart. Not from your body. You can cut off everything you want and you're still going to be a sinner. It's not our body which makes us sin. My flesh does not... It's true that when I leave this body, I'm never going to sin again. But that doesn't mean it's the body that makes me sin. 
God is absolutely committed to this body. It is part of my humanity. He is going to raise it from the dead. The body never makes you sin. There is a sin nature that we were born with, which is what compels us to sin. And so all he's saying is is that when the old man, sinful, separated from God, enemy of God, when that man was crucified, you became a new creature, and guess what? The ruling disposition of your life no longer is sin. Sin does not have the right any longer to rule over your life. Jesus is the one who rules over your life. And that He has put a new disposition in you, and He has given you His very Spirit, so that your body now can become an instrument for His life, rather than an instrument for sin. Because prior to receiving Christ, your body is simply an instrument for sin. That doesn't mean that every single thing that happens that we do before we are believers is in and of itself an act of sin. Unbelievers tell the truth. Unbelievers are faithful. We recognize that. But the origin of all they do is self and not God. And in that sense, because the origin is not in the presence and activity of God, it is not of God. It is ungodly. It is sin. And so the body and everything that it does prior to a person becoming a Christian and a new creation in Christ, that body is a tool for sin, an instrument for sin. Now, verse 7 For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, I came across something here, and I checked it out. The word for free is not the word for free. The word for free is the word for justification. There are other places in this passage where Paul will use free, and it's an entirely different word. This word is almost, in fact, I think every other time, translated justified. So what he's saying is, he who has died has, as it were, paid the penalty for sin. Not, we didn't do it ourselves, but in Christ. Remember, we died with Christ. So the penalty for sin, which is death, has been paid. And so when a person who who has committed some capital offense, and he is put to death for his capital crime, you could put over on on his death certificate, justified. He paid the penalty for his sin. We died with Christ. Therefore, when it comes to sin and comes to its penalty, justified. Justified. So it doesn't again mean that there is no presence of sin, that there is no power of sin. It means that when it, because he who has died has died because he died in Christ and Christ died for our sins, you are justified when it comes to sin. You are justified because the penalty of sin has been paid for. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Man, there's so much here. You know, I've I got to go back to the earlier where it says in verse 4 that we were, buried, we were crucified with Christ, we were buried with Christ, we were raised, and then it says, and so that we might walk in the newness of life. And we look at that as future, and I go, well, what does that mean? Well, when I die, I go to heaven, then I'm going to experience newness of life. But in the meantime, we just kind of groan and gut it out. 
And then I come down here to this verse I just read, and it, where, where was it? It says, um, where was I just reading? Verse 8. That we, we believe that we shall also live with Him. And again, it, it, it all seems to be future. Maybe in the future we'll live with Him, but right now we're just kind of just, just making it through the best we can. So I went through, and I, and I said, okay, i got to look at this. What are the future tenses? What are the present tenses in this passage? Future tense, that we might walk in the newness of life, that we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Verse 6, that the body of sin might be done away with, and, and then uh, and verse 8, when we shall, and we shall also live with Him. Past, future tenses with these. Doesn't this apply to now? I want the newness of life to apply to now. I want the resurrected life to apply now. It does. Verse 6, no longer be slaves to sin right now. He who has died is freed from sin, verse 7. Verse 9, death no, is, death no longer is master over him. Verse 10, the life that he lives, he lives to God, speaking of Christ. And then verse 11, even so, consider yourselves right now to be dead to sin and right now alive to God in Christ Jesus. These are not promises simply for the future. We have been, as believers in Jesus Christ, crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ. And we right now can walk in the newness of His life. It is for now, not just for when we go to heaven. We have been offered life. And that's why I think Paul so strongly is trying to say in this passage, you can continue in sin and you will know the grace of God. But you will not know the life of God. You will not know His life. Because life is for those who are living in Christ. Who receive Christ. Who walk in Christ. Who live in Christ. Who live in Christ in the same way that Jesus is living now toward the Father. Again, look at verse 10. Where it says, For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves... To be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider it so. It's not make-believe. It's not trying to imagine what isn't true. It is a fact. We were crucified with Christ. Judicially, God views sin and death as having been paid for. Because we died. And now, because Christ has been risen and we were raised with Him, we can walk in the newness of life in the same exact sense that Jesus is walking in newness of life. Because it's His life. How do we do it? Still begging the question. How? And that's where verse 12, and just with just very quick concluding thought, we'll come back to it next week. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Again, if there is no sin in us to reign, that verse doesn't make any sense, does it? But there is sin in us, and it can continue to reign. But it doesn't need to. What do I do? Present every member of your body to God as an instrument of righteousness. I can't make myself alive. I can't make myself free from sin. But I can put my faith in Christ. And He views me and He makes it a judicially so that I have been crucified with Him. I have died to sin. And I can hand myself over to Him again. I've used that phrase so many times. The empty hands of faith that we hand ourselves over to God and say, God, here I am. Having real trouble with my eyes these days, God. Hear my eyes, God. Having real trouble with my thoughts these days, God. Hear my thoughts, God. 
my feet, my hands. When he says that present the members of your body, again, he's not just speaking about the physicality. Certainly includes that, but everything. My dreams, my ambitions, my hurts, my longings, everything that makes me me, hand it over to God. And God will take it and receive it as an instrument of righteousness. It's your life, God. I can't live it. And I want to walk in the newness of life. It is the same way that Jesus lived. He handed himself over to the Father every moment of every day. Here I am, Father, your vessel, for you to act in, for you to live through, so that he could say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Here I am, Father. In the same way that he lives to God, even so, consider yourselves to sin, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then again, that next verse, don't let sin reign. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. It is in the aorist tense, which means that it's a point in time when this ought to take place. But it is not something that just happens once and we never remember again. But we live daily in the same way that Jesus lives daily to God. I believe that Jesus, in terms of his humanity, is still living in absolute dependence upon his Father because he is still fully human, fully God, fully man. And in terms of his humanity, he's not living any differently today in heaven than he did when he was on earth. In absolute dependence upon his Father. Here I am, Father, because this is how man was designed to live. So, Lord, sin's pretty strong these days. God says, I understand, and you're not adequate for it. More about that in chapter 7. But the one thing he's telling us here in chapter 6, you need to remember, you will never find life in sin. Grace you will. Life you won't. And it's life or death. And it comes down to reckon yourself dead based upon what Christ has done. And hand yourself over. I think it needs to be conscious. I think it needs to be deliberate. Sit down with a piece of paper, folks, if you've never done this. And list down everything that makes you, you. And hand it over. Give it to God. Otherwise, you're going to know God's grace. You will not know his life. Unless everything that is you has been presented to him. Here I am, God. And God says, now I'm free to make you an instrument of righteousness. Not an instrument of sin any longer, but an instrument of righteousness. And all you've done is hand yourself over to him. Let me close us in prayer.